Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible lets you pick from thousands of audiobooks across every genre. As a new member, you can get a 30-day trial subscription free, and you can download and keep one free book. And if you sign up using my special code, audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod, you will contribute $15 towards this podcast. Since today's episode focuses on war economy, mobilization, and national will, today's recommendation is a book I have read and listened to several times. The Wages of Destruction, The Making and Breaking of the Nazi Economy by Adam Tooze. This is an economic history of Nazi Germany and how it fought World War II. It is one of the books that changed the way I saw military history, World War II, and the Holocaust. And it is free for a first-time listener. So once again, that is audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod. On with the show. The year, 1868. The place, South America. Paraguay and the Triple Alliance are locked in a stalemate. It has become a war of attrition, a contest of resources, societies, and national will centered on the fortress of Humaita, the Gibraltar of the South. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is Episode 50, The Paraguayan War, Part 4, Gibraltar of the South. This is the pivotal chapter in the war as we deal with the Allied campaign to capture the fortress of Humaita and tackle much more obscure issues like resources, war economy, political will, and national morale. If those don't sound exciting, get excited anyway, because you should care, and I'm going to tell you why. Before we go any farther, though, I have an announcement. This is my 50th episode, Big Five Zero, and I'm taking this opportunity to thank you all for listening and supporting this podcast. To show my appreciation, I am doing a giveaway. To enter, just go to my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com and check the toolbar for my 50th episode giveaway. Please type your name and email into the form and hit the enter button. Five lucky winners will receive an exclusive Unknown Soldiers Podcast coffee mug. The winners will be announced at the beginning of episode number 51, and I will reach out to you for shipping information. This mug would be great for coffee or tea or even yerba mate, so you can do some themed drinking for the Paraguayan War finale. So once again, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, fill out the form, you stand a chance of winning that mug. Alright y'all, that's the pitch, on to the episode. And as always, we need to do a quick recap. We've been on this campaign a while. Previously... On the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. In episode 47, the Paraguayan War Part 1, The Rivers of Destiny, we were introduced to Paraguay, a small, landlocked, deeply strange little country in the heart of South America. Paraguay was authoritarian, centralized, and extremely nationalistic. This was in sharp contrast to the Empire of Brazil and the Argentine Republic, much larger countries full of internal weaknesses and political strife and Uruguay was pulled back and forth between them in a power struggle over who would control the Rio de la Plata, the rivers of destiny that shaped South America's future. Paraguay's dictator, Francisco Solano Lopez, was a megalomaniac with delusions of grandeur. In 1863, he made the very unwise decision to intervene in the struggle for Uruguay. For many reasons, none of them good, 
Lopez led Paraguay first to war with Brazil in 1864, then Argentina in 1865. This war pitted tiny but powerful Paraguay against Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay, who soon joined forces under the Treaty of the Triple Alliance. In Episode 48, The Paraguayan War Part 2, The Triple Alliance, we continue that story. We talked about Lopez's offensive into Argentine and Brazilian territory, an offensive that met with disaster in the Great River Battle of the Riachuelo and defeats on land at Yate in the Siege of Uruguayana. Now it was the Allies' turn to go on the offensive. In Episode 49, The Paraguayan War Part 3, The Funnel of Death, we followed the Triple Alliance in their invasion of Paraguay. What looked like a quick road to victory with the crossing of the Piranha River ended in a series of bloody confrontations. These included the Battle of Tuyuti, the largest battle in South American history, which destroyed the best units in the Paraguayan army. But the most important was the Battle of Curupaiti in September 1866, where a devastating Allied defeat caused political upheavals throughout the Triple Alliance. Their objective, Lopez's fortress of Humaita, the Gibraltar of the South, seemed farther away than ever. The battles of 1866 almost knocked Argentina and Uruguay out of the war, even as Brazil and Paraguay became more committed to total victory. We will be picking up today with the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Curupaiti. If you need a refresher, you may want to backtrack a bit and take a listen to parts 1 through 3. If not, let's get rolling. As always, this is not just history, but military history, so there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. The podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not. All my sources and some wonderful custom-made, very useful maps will be on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, link in the description. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. Most people who study war, including academics and military officers, tend to have a certain view of conflict, and these views often fall into one of two camps. Are wars determined by material factors, by economics and finance and doctrine and manpower and technology and rounds per minute? Is war a simple matter of resources? Or are wars determined by human factors? Courage and discipline and motivation and willpower, maybe even faith, is war a matter of will? Lots of people, whether they admit it or not, fall into one of these two camps. If you believe that Russian victory in Ukraine is inevitable, you probably see war as a matter of resources. If you believe Ukraine's victory is inevitable, you probably see war as a matter of will. Of course, neither side's victory is inevitable. War is a matter of both resources and will, and how they are wielded. That tends to be where leadership and strategy and tactics come into play. Countries with superior resources have used them badly or ineffectively. See everyone who has ever invaded Afghanistan. Countries with superior will have made strategic or tactical errors that cost them the war. See the Confederacy. Note that superior will doesn't necessarily mean you're on the right side. The Paraguayan War is as clear an example of you'll, as you'll ever get of resources versus will. The Triple Alliance had a huge advantage in resources, manpower, firepower, economic strength. If war is a matter, a simple matter of resources, the Triple Alliance should have won easily. But they didn't. Because as we have seen, Paraguayan will was vastly superior. 
Compared to the Allied peoples who increasingly saw the cause as not worth the sacrifice, Paraguay saw this as a war of survival, of independence or death, a cause worth any sacrifice. By September 1866, both Paraguay and the Triple Alliance had failed to win the war through decisive military action. No single battle was going to determine the outcome of this conflict. This meant that resources and will became the decisive factors in a war that dragged on for years. Could the Allies sustain their collective will long enough to bring their superior resources to bear? Could the Paraguayans manage their dwindling resources even as their will remained unbroken? Today's episode will cover two full years of the Paraguayan War, from September 1866, just after the Battle of Curupaiti, to August 1868, when the stalemate was broken and one side was clearly winning the conflict. And we will focus on the questions of resources and will, and how to wield them. Very relevant, very current topics like mobilization, total war, industrial production, international support, grand strategy. And as these nations harden their wills and feed more resources and lives to the insatiable beast that is war, their sacrifices multiply, driving the conflict to even greater extremes. Paraguay waged a total war, a full mobilization of all its resources and all its will to defeat the Triple Alliance. The irony is that this very mobilization, this very sacrifice, helped to bring about the destruction that they feared. As a slogan, independence or death, became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Today, we will continue the story of the Paraguayan War. We will show how the war ground to a halt for almost a year, as Paraguay did its best to assemble the resources it needed to survive, while the Allies tried to shore up their faltering will. We will see the Allies set out to finally capture Humaita, the Gibraltar of the South, a massive grinding campaign that tests both sides to their very limits. And guys... At the end of this episode, one side has clearly won the war, but the war isn't over because the other side refuses to admit defeat, setting us up for the final chapter in our saga. And I will sum up why all this matters in that final chapter, part five. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this episode does describe two years of war, you are going to need breaks. These are your chance to pause, finish your Halloween costumes, dress your pets in cute sweaters against their consent, do the thing you need to do. So throw on your ragged tunic, grab your obsolete musket, ignore the hunger pangs in your belly, and take your place in the trenches. The macacos are coming. Their rifles are deadlier, their bellies are full, their uniforms are new, and they actually get paid, but you're fighting for the survival of your nation. Let them come. Independence or death. Let's go back on campaign. It was September 1866, and celebrations rang throughout every town in Paraguay. The people sang and cheered and praised the leadership of their martial president, Francisco Solano Lopez, because they had just won their greatest victory of the war. 
The Battle of Kurupaiti, where the Allies had hammered themselves bloody against strong defenses, designed by English engineer George Thompson and commanded by Paraguay's new hero, Jose Diaz. Paraguayan soldiers danced within the walls of Humaita, showing off their war trophies from the Allied dead. Of course, Kurupaiti did not change a few basic facts. Paraguay was isolated, outnumbered, outgunned, and its economy was tanking. These were problems that no battlefield victories could solve. But for Francisco Solano Lopez, Kurupaiti confirmed that superior will could overcome superior resources. Paraguay just had to hold firm, outlast their opponents, and they could still win the war. So Lopez ordered the Kurupaiti defenses extended. New trenches were built in an enormous rectangle, connecting all the old positions and stretching for miles around Lopez's headquarters at Paso Puku. The trenches were ringed with abatis and obstacles, studded with heavy cannons and watchtowers, and linked by telegraph wires. The Allies called this big extensive network of trenches, in a rough rectangle, the Quadrilateral. And at the center sat Lopez's great fortress, the linchpin of his nation's defense, with its guns dominating the Paraguay River. Humaita, the Gibraltar of the South. Lopez believed these defenses would force the Allies to repeat the Kurupaiti experience if they wanted to attack him. Another defeat like that, an Allied will might finally snap. But the Allies would be launching no attacks anytime soon, because for almost a year after Kurupaiti, Neither side made any offensive moves whatsoever. Nothing. Zilch. Nada. No battles, just small skirmishes, sniper fire, and bombardments. The front lines did not move for almost a year. From September 1866 to July 1867, the Paraguayan War came to a halt. One historian calls this the Long Pause. It is very rare that a major war just stops like this. The long pause was the result of a critical lack of Paraguayan resources and a critical lack of Allied will. Lopez's defeats had destroyed the offensive potential of his military, and the Allied positions were too strong to attack without risking another 2UT. Paraguay had no choice but to sit on the de defensive and await the Allies' move. But the lack of Allied will was the main reason they didn't move. Kudupaiti almost shattered Allied morale. The army's spirits were in the gutter, its soldiers were afflicted by disease, disorganization, and poor discipline. Second, the Triple Alliance was crumbling. The blame game was on, the Argentines blamed the Brazilians, especially Admiral Tamandare's incompetence, and the Brazilians blamed the Argentines, especially Bartolome Mitre's caution. Everybody blamed everyone else for the defeated Kurupaiti. The group project was on life support. Finally, Kudupaiti caused a crisis of will in every allied nation. In Uruguay, the news coincided with the resumption of the civil war between the Blancos and the Colorados. It got so bad that Uruguayan President Venancio Flores had to leave the war front and go home to attend to politics. He left Paraguay and took most of his army with him, including the survivors of Colonel Palleja's Florida Battalion. Only a small detachment stayed behind to wave the Uruguayan flag. In Brazil, Kurupaiti set off a wave of pessimism. No one in the political elite really wanted the war to continue. No one except Dom Pedro II. He saw the war as personal, a contest of will between himself and Lopez. Pedro said, 
They talk about peace in La Plata, but I won't make a peace with Lopez, and public opinion is on my side. Therefore, I do not doubt the honorable outcome of the campaign for Brazil. The Brazilian elite did not want the war to continue, but their personal loyalty to Pedro overrode this impulse. Dom Pedro rallied his nation when things seemed darkest, when victory seemed impossible. He appointed a new prime minister, the liberal Zacharias de Goas y Vasconcelos, and ordered him to do whatever it took to win the war, form a coalition government, find more money, more men, more guns, and most of all, find a leader. The Triple Alliance's leadership had always been their biggest weakness. It was a divided command system where no one really knew who was in charge. Mitre, Flores, Tamandare, all mediocre leaders. But Brazil had a guy. A guy who had been on the bench this entire time. It was time for Brazil to send in the peacemaker. Luis Alves de Lima y Silva, the Marquis of Caxias. The Marquis of Caxias was in his 60s, with a trimmed white beard, a disciplined bearing, and an air of nobility and authority. He was a slave owner, a pillar of the Brazilian aristocracy, a champion of the imperial regime, and Pedro's most loyal supporter. As a young lieutenant, Caxias had taught riding and swordsmanship to the teenage Pedro. Caxias was also Brazil's most legendary general. He had led its armies in multiple victorious campaigns. He was a military professional, equally proficient in tactics, strategy, and logistics. Caxias was also a skilled diplomat and politician. He had resolved the Ragamuffin Rebellion in the 1840s with a mixture of force and conciliation, and he had held multiple imperial political offices, including Prime Minister. In Brazil, his nickname was literally The Peacemaker. Yes, like the superhero, the peacemaker. And in this war, he would gain another nickname, the Iron Duke. Those aren't names you get playing foosball. This guy didn't mess around. So you're already asking, why isn't he already in charge? Where has he been? Politics. See, the Liberal Party had been in power in Brazil since the war began. But Caxias was a prominent conservative. So the Liberals kept him on the bench. But in August 1866, the Liberal Party fell from power. This, the disaster at Curupaiti, and Dom Pedro's personal intervention cleared the way. Caxias came out of retirement to take command of all Brazilian forces, army and navy. He left for the war front where Bartolome Mitre awaited his arrival. Mitre had a lot on his mind. Argentina was on the verge of collapse. The war had grown dramatically unpopular, even within his own centralist party. The mood in Buenos Aires was, look, we don't care anymore. We are tired of this war. It needs to go away. Out in the provinces, things were even worse. They had never supported the war, and they resented the conscription and taxation that the war brought. Curupaiti was the last straw. In November 1866, a rebellion broke out in the western provinces of Cuyo and La Rioja. These Montoneros, they were called Montoneros, waved the old standard of federalism, calling to end the war and dismantle the centralist republic. Their slogan was, Down with those who usurp the revenues and rights of the provinces for the benefit of Buenos Aires, a vain, despotic, and indolent people. Hmm, that's a lot of words for a slogan, guys. Maybe workshop that a bit. Still, Argentina's will was fading fast. On November 18, 1866, the Marquis of Caxias arrived in Paraguay and started cleaning house. 
The first to go was Admiral Tamandare. In his first meeting with the prima donna admiral, Cassius informed him that the emperor had given him authority over both army and navy. Tamandare bristled at taking orders from not just an army man, but a conservative. He immediately offered his resignation, and Cassius said, Awesome, there's the door. Tamandare retired to a cushy ceremonial job with no real power, and he is out of this story. His replacement was Admiral Joaquim José Ignacio, who was much easier to get along with. Mitre kept a low profile after Cassius arrived. He was still the Supreme Allied Commander, and Cassius was always very deferential to him, but both men knew that the Brazilians now held the dominant position in the Alliance, and Cassius was the new driving force behind the army. Plus, the war was no longer Mitre's biggest problem. The Montonero Rebellion and the political situation in Buenos Aires demanded his attention. Mitre sent General Palnero back home with several Argentine divisions to try and crush the rebellion, but this wasn't enough. On February 9, 1867, Bartolome Mitre left the war front with 3,600 men to restore order back in Argentina and restore his nation's crumbling will. In his absence, Cachias took command of the army. Mitre will return in this episode, but he was basically passing the torch. For all intents and purposes, the Marquis of Cachias was now supreme commander of the Triple Alliance. Mitre left the Allied army in bad shape. Discipline was non-existent, the camp was a public health nightmare, weapons were filthy, uniforms were ragged, horses were starving and neglected. Most critically of all, their morale was in the gutter. And it's not hard to see why. They were just sitting around. They had fought a bunch of battles, seen their friends and leaders die, and the end of the war seemed farther away than ever. What was the point? The Allied army had every resource it needed, but it was suffering from a critical shortage of will. The Marquis of Cassius had one of the hardest missions of any commander, restoring discipline and morale to a force that has lost it. Cassius remembered. It was therefore necessary to call in everything, carrying out a new reorganization, and, for all of that, time was indispensable. This was one of the main reasons for the long pause. Cassius was slowly, carefully, rebuilding the Grand Army of the Triple Alliance. Cassius unleashed general orders on everything from uniform standards to tables of organization. He got rid of the glitzy parade ground uniforms and replaced them with pragmatic blue. He wrote new tactical manuals and organized basic training for new recruits. He founded a military police force to enforce cleanliness and discipline. None of this stuff existed before. <laughs> he rebuilt the logistic apparatus and set standards for the proper care and feeding of horses. No detail was too small. He even ordered his military policemen to list all existing female camp followers and make them rush to the hospitals as soon as the battle begins. The Marquis of Cassius knew that setting and enforcing a standard wasn't enough. He had to set an example. Every single day, he woke up at the crack of dawn, put on his dress blues, and rode out to inspect his camps. He was polite to his men, but very harsh on officers who neglected his regulations. Cassius would arrest officers if their soldiers didn't have boots or their horses weren't properly fed. He even had two doctors arrested for letting their patients get rained on during a storm. But good officers were promoted, regardless of title or rank. The army before and after Cassius was like night and day. One observer reported, 
Before he took charge, the Brazilian army was in the worst possible condition. Now it can compare favorably with the most civilized. Their morale began to grow. Caxias wasn't just reforming the army, he was rebuilding its will. The long pause continued. The two armies watched each other from their trench lines as days turned into weeks and weeks turned into months. It was never exactly quiet. There was sniping or skirmishes, but no battles. Both sides continued to launch pointless bombardments at each other. There were days the Allied Navy fired a thousand rounds at the Kurupaiti defenses, to no effect. The Paraguayans found a way to get under the Allies' skin. They had these weird little cow horns, called turuturus, which made a somehow naturally insulting sound. You want to know how what it sounded like? It's in the name. Turuturu. Every time the Allied batteries missed one of their targets, the Paraguayans, being the legendary trolls they were, would mock them by blowing on these stupid horns as loud as they could. Turuturu. They were really loud, and it was really annoying. Like, imagine if every time someone missed a basket during a basketball game, you heard this garbage over everything else. Apparently, Cassius himself found them infuriating. There are lots of great photographs from the Long Paws, dozens of pictures of the Allied Army that look pretty freaking similar to pictures of the Union Army from the Civil War. Soldiers on the front line frittered away their time patrolling, yelling insults to the enemy, or improving their earthworks. The young Brazilian volunteer officer, Dionisio Cerquiera, remembered constant digging to improve the Brazilian fortifications. At one point, they dug too deep. Cerquiera remembered. As soon as the comrade had reached the bottom, we felt the characteristic smell of death. One more hoe hit and a rotten skull appeared. He plugged the hole and dug another one. This was almost certainly a body from one of the battles of 1866 the year that still haunted the Triple Alliance. Both armies' rations relied on beef and biscuit. One daily Argentine ration included flour, rice, almost two pounds of beef, along with tobacco, soap, and salt. Beef was the big menu item. It was always beef, fresh or dry. Argentina was prime cattle country almost as much as the American West, and beef was pretty cheap. The Argentines had a practice of cutting the beef into long strips and drying it in the sun before dipping it into a salt and orange juice mix to flavor it. The Argentine term for this was charqui, which became anglicized as jerky. The soldiers also got drunk a lot. Their soldiers, what else is new? The drinks of choice were the La Plata Caña or the Brazilian Aguardiente, both made from sugarcane. Or there was a Paraguayan beer called Cagui, made from sour honey. Or there was Argentine wine. The most common drink by far was yerba mate, the tea that had been Paraguay's main export before the war. Every army drank plenty of yerba mate. The Allied soldiers spent the months writing letters, playing guitar, or going down to Paso de la Patria for some R&R. The Paraguayan village had become a ramshackle boomtown. There were dance halls and theaters and cafes and nightclubs and plenty of prostitutes. General Osorio tried to get rid of the prostitutes, but this caused such an outcry from the soldiers that he had to relent. The Paraguayans were never as well supplied as the Allies, so their recreation didn't amount to much. Lopez did put his staff officer, Captain Juan Centurion, in charge of a soldier's school to teach the illiterate Guarani conscripts some very basic reading, writing, and arithmetic. Captain Centurion loved his new job. It actually implied optimism for Paraguay's future. One observer reported seeing men. 
Returning from an attack on enemy convoys in the swamps, or from a charge with sword and bayonet. Hanging up their arms in leather shakos, drying away their heroic sweat, and taking up the pencil to translate English or French. The Paraguayan soldiers constantly mocked and taunted the Allies from across the lines. They had particular and very racialized scorn for the Brazilians. The Paraguayans like to call the Brazilians macacos, or monkeys, or in Guarani, the cambaes, or blacks. There were plenty of propaganda broadsheets, and they always depicted the Brazilians as a horde of lustful Negro savages, imagery the American South would have found very familiar. There was also the added implication that the Brazilian macacos would abuse and molest their women if the Paraguayans were defeated, the racialized fear-mongering so common in wartime. The only limit to the Paraguayan propaganda was the paper shortage that was strangling the nation's printing presses. Paraguay lost a prominent leader during the long pause. General José Díaz had been at the forefront in every battle of 1866, a charismatic, courageous leader. Especially after Kurupaiti, he was their war hero, their great general. But on January 26, 1867, Diaz pushed his luck too far. He took a canoe out into the Paraguay River and stopped within sight of the Brazilian ironclads, only to drop his fishing line into the water, like making a big show of it, like, see, I'm not scared of you, I'm fishing right in front of the ironclads. He was doing a fearless stunt to inspire his men. Hey, look, ironclads, I'm not afraid of you. What are you going to do, shoot me? And then they shot him. A 13-inch shell blew his leg off. Eliza Lynch carried the wounded general back to Paso Puku in her carriage. Diaz slipped in and out of consciousness for days, talking about how he wanted one more shot at the macacos, before dying in Lopez's arms on February 7, 1867. Paraguay went into mourning, as did Lopez. It was the only death in the war that seemed to really affect him. Jose Diaz had been the epitome of mindless courage and blind loyalty, the two traits Lopez wanted all Paraguayans to embody. I've seen one historian compare Diaz's death to Stonewall Jackson's death, which isn't quite fair. Diaz never had Stonewall's brilliance or independent command ability, but Lopez would find it hard to replace him. Another noteworthy event during the long pause was the Allied experiment with hot air balloons. See, the Marquis of Caxias wanted to do some reconnaissance. Yeah, someone actually wants to do reconnaissance in the Paraguayan War. Well, wonders never cease. So Pedro II sent him the Allen brothers, two American balloonists who had done their work in the Civil War as well. The Allen brothers got the balloon working and they sent it in 20 trips to observe the Paraguayan quadrilateral. The observer was a Polish military engineer in Brazilian service, Major Roberto Chodasiewicz. Chodasiewicz remembered. With the aid of a long-distance eyepiece, we could make out, for the first time, all those formidable lines of fortifications. We saw the whole Paraguayan quadrilateral. But Lopez developed countermeasures. He had the Paraguayans start setting fires to smoke the balloon out, and this eventually brought a stop to the experiments. But Chodasiewicz's sketches did give Caxias a clear picture of the Paraguayan lines, which would serve him very well in the coming campaign. This was the first airborne operation in the military history of South America. Another strange experiment was a light-in-picture machine that the Paraguayans had imported from France. I don't know much about this machine, it's kind of mysterious even in the sources. The equipment arrived before the war, but the instructions didn't. So Lopez ordered George Thompson and Dr. George Masterman to set it up. 
Somehow, the British expats figured it out, and the Paraguayan soldiers were treated to what was basically a steampunk version of those overhead projectors you remember from middle school. Thompson and Masterman amused themselves by reading the captions wrong, such as describing a fictional battle of Copenhagen between the Persians and the Dutch, and then kicking each other to stop from laughing when Lopez pretended he knew what they were talking about. The Paraguayan soldier's favorite image from the show was of a little person, a, a person with dwarfism, whose nose grew rapidly like Pinocchio. That was, I guess that was high comedy to them. It was a strange interlude in a strange war. The long pause didn't see much killing, but it saw a lot of dying. Because in April 1867, our old friend Cholera finally arrived to the party. Well, sorry I'm late, guys. I got held up in India, and dysentery and malaria are like, oh, geez, nice of you to show up. We've been doing all the work. Cholera is a highly contagious waterborne disease, one of the deadliest pandemics of the 19th century. We spent a lot of time talking about the nightmare that was cholera in the Crimean War. The pandemic arrived in South America in early 1867, and by April, it was chewing its way through the Allied Army. It was a perfect storm of pandemic risk factors. The soldiers were packed together in camps, surrounded by standing water. They were literally in a swamp, perfect breeding grounds for cholera, and new recruits with untested immune systems were flooding in from all over the continent. By the end of April, 13,000 Brazilian soldiers were incapacitated, and over half of them would die. The Brazilian Medical Corps was overwhelmed. The doctors knew some ways to deal with cholera, but they also had some very bad ideas, like giving their patients tons of alcohol. No. Alcohol dehydrates you, which is the wrong thing to do to a cholera patient. The sheer scale of the death and the problems of sanitation in the Paraguayan swamp made the medical staff desperate. Serquiera remembered one Brazilian doctor on a hospital ship who gave all the men on the left side of the ward emetics to make them vomit, and all the men on the right side diuretics. Then he switched it the next day because he just didn't know what to do. Everyone panicked, except the Marquis of Caxias. He kept calm and issued new hygiene standards to all his commanders. He set up water purification drills for his units and had his military police inspect the drainage and sewage systems around the camp. And Caxias found an expert to organize the response. We last saw Colonel Pinheiro Guimares, wounded leading an infantry battalion at 2UT. It was a good thing he survived because he was a doctor and he had experience with cholera. Guimaraes quarantined cholera victims, established a triage system, and, des- and designed the sanitation standards that Caxias enforced. Guimaraes combed through the hospitals to kick out malingerers, returning 2,500 men to the front line and freeing up beds for cholera patients. By mid-May, the Allied army had survived the cholera outbreak. The disease killed many, but absolute disaster was averted. This is what could have been done with the Allied Army on the Crimea during the Crimean War if they'd had somebody like the Marquis of Caxias instead of Lord Raglan. Caxias had won his first and deadliest battle thanks to his own quick actions and the Brazilian doctors and nurses. The long pause continued as balloons and light shows, cholera and turuturus, took the place of battles and maneuvers. But the struggle continued and the war would be decided on the home front.
It's the same old story. A country goes to war expecting it to be short, clean, and victorious, and they're wrong. Paraguay in 1865 and the Triple Alliance in 1866 had launched big offensives to try and win the war in one blow, and that didn't happen. Now they faced a long war of attrition, a war of resources and will, where victory would be won or lost on the home front. Each side faced challenges on the home front. The Allies had plenty of resources. Their challenge would be finding the will, the political determination to continue the war. Paraguay had plenty of will. Their challenge would be finding the resources, manpower, food, and equipment to compete with the Allies. So we're going to use the long pause, this opportunity the historical narrative has given us, to look at the home front of the Paraguayan War, starting with the Triple Alliance. Of all three allies, Uruguay was the least committed to the war. They did not care. They had no reason to. Paraguay hadn't attacked them, hadn't threatened them, wasn't any of their business. They had no skin in the game. To the Uruguayans, it was never their war. It was Flores's war. Back in Montevideo, Venancio Flores, who had just left the war front, tried, to do, tried his best to do the whole president thing, but his best wasn't very good. He was a Caldillo type, a warlord, an anachronism in the new South America, a war leader but not a peace leader. His political bumbling lost support across Uruguay, even in his own Colorado party. At one point, his own sons tried to overthrow him. <laughs> Man had a 0% approval rating. Worst of all, his old enemies, the Blancos, were coming out of hiding. On February 19, 1868, fighting broke out between the Blancos and Colorados in the streets of Montevideo. Flores, riding across the city to rally his supporters, ran into a carriage blocking the street. It was a trap. A dozen men in black ponchos came out and stabbed Flores to death in their best rendition of Julius Caesar's assassination. After dodging death on a dozen battlefields, Financio Flores died in the streets of his own capital. I imagine the Grim Reaper pumping his fist in the background, Frickin' finally! The hilarious thing is to this day, no one knows who killed Flores, which faction. He had so many enemies that it could have been anybody. Street fighting went on for days and Uruguay collapsed once again into civil war. A small Uruguayan force called the Oriental Division under General Enrique Castro would fight with the Allied forces to the end of the war, but its food, equipment, and pay all came from its allies, and most of its soldiers were former Paraguayan POWs. They represented Uruguay in name only. Uruguay's short, unhappy involvement in the Paraguayan War had ju been just an interlude in the cycle of civil war. Their will to continue the war which had never been high to begin with, was gone. April 10th, 1867 saw one of the decisive battles of the Paraguayan War that wasn't part of the Paraguayan War. The Montonero Rebellion had been advancing for months, but at the Battle of Pozo de Vargas, they ran into the Argentine army. Only 2,000 Argentine troops faced 4,000 rebel cavalry. But these troops were the veterans of Yate, Tuyuti, and Kurupaiti, and they smashed the rebels. Pozo de Vargas was a victory in more than just military terms. The victorious Argentine army came from all the various provinces with their cohesion and unity forged on the battlefields of the Paraguayan War. A disunited Argentina had come together through the army, 
and now the army was forging the Argentine nation. In contrast, the defeated Montoneros, a force of old-style gaucho cavalry, were the last gasp of the Federalist cause. The Centralist victory was not preordained. The Montoneros fully expected the old Federalist leader, Justo José de Urquiza, to help them overthrow Mitre. One of their flags bore the slogan, Federation or death, long live the great Urquiza, down with the Brazilian Negroes. There was even a rebel battalion called the Urquiza Battalion, but Urquiza himself never showed up. You might have been wondering about that. You might have said at some point in the last couple episodes, James, you built this guy up as a big character in part one, and then he just sort of vanished. Yeah, because that's basically what happened. Everyone expected Urquiza to be a big player in this war. But despite all his friends and family, even his wife pleading with him to take up arms and join the rebels, Urquiza just chilled on his ranch. For reasons that remain unclear and are more like a matter of psychology than anything else, he just didn't join the rebellion, which spelled its doom. The victory gave Bartolome Mitre valuable breathing space to deal with a political meltdown in Buenos Aires. He was on thin freaking ice and he knew it. He had to somehow convince Argentina, including his own centralist party, to stay in the war when they really didn't want to. The rebellion had been a sign that Argentina's will was cracking. Asking too much of his people at this point might be the last straw. But if Mitre was good at one thing, it was politics. He made compromises, persuaded his supporters, and mobilized allies in the provinces. He stitched together a bargain with the elite of Buenos Aires that Argentina would stay in the war, but on a limited basis, providing money and resources, but less troops. You might ask why Argentina would stay in the war. This sucks. But Mitre and his allies knew that if Argentina dipped and Brazil went on to defeat Paraguay without them, Argentina would lose any share of the victory and any say in the peace deal. Brazil might just swallow Paraguay up like a go-gurt and achieve full domination over La Plata. So Argentina needed a seat at the table. It wasn't fear of their enemies, but fear of their allies that kept them in the war. With the rebellion defeated and the political situation stabilized, Mitre had weathered the storm. Argentina's will had survived. Granted, it barely survived. Their commitment would be lukewarm at best from here on out. For the rest of the war, the Allied army rarely contained more than 5,000 Argentine troops, which were a small fraction of the Brazilian contingent. But Mitre, master politician that he was, had pulled off a minor miracle in patching up his country's will just enough to stay in the fight. Brazil was going to be in this fight so long as Dom Pedro II maintained his personal will. As I keep saying, Pedro was a peaceful, noble man who hated war and militarism. But the emperor identified himself with his nation, and the damage Paraguay had done only hardened his will to destroy Lopez's regime. The emperor worked night and day to rally his people and manage the war effort from Rio. He was a hard-working war leader. But not all the Brazilians had the same dedication. There was plenty of anti-war sentiment in Brazil. The northern provinces like Bahia, the Pernambuco area, were very anti-war, as were the lower classes. The middle classes still waved the flag, kinda, but they just wanted to know when their boys could come home. Newspapers and writers raised their voices and protested the conflict. Now, none of this posed a serious challenge to the regime, 
there was at least a slim majority still backing up Pedro II. But Brazil still had problems, especially in recruitment. Those early days with the eager young volunteers were long gone. People looked at this garbage fire and said, this sucks, no thank you. So the army's ranks ended up being filled by conscription. The Brazilian soldier of the late war was far more likely to be an unwilling draftee than an eager volunteer. They fought well, but they were not enthusiastic. They just wanted to get the job done and go home. But Brazil did have one source of willing volunteers. By the midpoint of the war, the Brazilian army was seeking volunteers from their enslaved population. Lots of Brazilian aristocrats were horrified at the thought. Like many Americans, like the Confederacy, they understood that letting slaves fight meant acknowledging them as people, which was kind of undermined the whole slavery thing. But the empire needed bodies. The government paid compensation to plantation owners whose slaves volunteered for the army. And there were lots of volunteers because war sucks, but Brazilian slavery is much worse. And many Afro-Brazilians did identify with their nation, especially with the emperor. By the end of the war, I estimate that the majority of the Brazilian army was either black or mulatto. Around 9,000 slaves officially joined the Brazilian army in exchange for their freedom. That was the deal. You, you serve in this war, you get your freedom. But that doesn't count the large number who ran away and enlisted anyway to escape their owners. The plantation owners' fears were not unfounded. Every former slave who took up arms for Dom Pedro was now a member of the Brazilian nation in another crack in the edifice of Brazilian slavery. The aristocratic elites of Brazil weren't just scared of their slaves. They were also scared of the army. They looked around and saw all those other Latin American governments getting overthrown by the military, so the Brazilian ruling class had always kept the army on a tight leash. Don't let them get too powerful. But now Brazil needed the army to be powerful, and that was a double-edged sword. The Marquis of Caxias might have been an excellent general, but he was also a very powerful politician, and he used his, the army's needs to get his way at the expense of the Brazilian political establishment. He had only agreed to come out of retirement if the war minister, an old adversary of his, was fired. This was an ominous sign. The army was exerting influence over Brazilian politics, and the war had opened the door for this. And we will come back to that. The Allies also had major problems with finance. The Paraguayan War was massively expensive. They were funding a 50,000-man army. Those guys needed food, uniforms, equipment, rifles, artillery, horses, medicine, and, of course, plenty of booze. So Brazil turned to foreign loans, especially from Britain. And the Allies did not have great credit, so the London banks charged them enormous interest. The Allies were mortgaging their future to win the war in the present. Every real or peso that went into the conflict wasn't going into education or healthcare or economic development. War is always an opportunity cost. Every dollar spent on guns is a dollar not spent on something else. Brazil would be paying off its debts decades later, which would carry a severe political impact down the road. The war wasn't all bad economically. Merchants in Brazil and Argentina provided beef and wheat and sugar and tobacco and horses and ships and wagons and uniforms, and they made bank. One of the big war profiteers was Justo José de Urquiza, who made a fortune selling horses to the Brazilian army. Maybe that's why he didn't want to fight. 
Buenos Aires, the gateway to La Plata, was booming from this inflow of capital. It became one of the boom cities in the Western Hemisphere because of this war. The war was bad for Argentina, but very good for the Porteño merchants. So the Triple Alliance's will survived. Uruguay was out, but they'd never really been in. Argentina, against all odds, stayed in the ring. And then there was Brazil. Carlos Antonio Lopez had warned his son not to solve Paraguay's problems with war, especially with Brazil. And the reasons for that warning were now evident. Solano Lopez had awakened a furious giant. The empire hardened its will and mobilized its resources to crush the Paraguayan Republic. So now we come to the Paraguayan home front. And to me, this is the most incredible part of this war. Paraguay was practically a peasant economy with a handful of modern factories, cut off from the outside world by the Allied blockade, with no advantages in technology or tactics and definitely not leadership, fighting the overwhelming resources of the Triple Alliance. But despite all of this, Paraguay held out for over five years. And they could only do this by waging total war. Total war is the mobilization of every resource for the war effort, and it is very rare in history that people do this, the world wars being the most prominent examples. In all of South America, only Paraguay, an authoritarian, highly centralized nation-state, with a hysterical level of nationalism, a long tradition of self-sufficiency, and seemingly unlimited will, had the capacity for total war. Unlike the Allies, Paraguay was virtually isolated, cut off from the outside world. The Allied blockade of the rivers forced them to be self-sufficient. But this is where their history becomes important. Paraguay had been self-sufficient during their long isolation under Dr. Francia. They had experience surviving on their own resources. They remembered how, and it wasn't new. So while Lopez managed the army at Humaita, the elderly Vice President Domingo Sanchez managed the war effort from Asuncion. He oversaw a command economy where the central government exercised absolute control over all resources, with every man and woman committed to the war effort. Sanchez gave orders to the population. Every day, every season, even moonlit nights, without distinction between the sexes, in anticipation of the day in which the entire male population will have to abandon any pursuit that does not promote the expulsion of the perfidious enemy. All must work, and it is necessary to utilize all forces to provide the necessities of life. Paraguay had very little industry, so almost everything was handmade. Sanchez set quotas for uniform production, like so many uniforms per household, and with the cotton shortage, they had to be made from the fibers of local plants. The unfinished National Theater in Asuncion became a workshop for weaving shirts. Traditional remedies substituted for modern medicine. Civilians donated their personal items. These donations were, in theory, consensual, but it's more like, hey there, uh, you haven't donated in a while. Uh, you're not thinking of being treasonous, are you? Women donated their jewelry, most of which went into the treasury, though some did end up in the hands of Eliza Lynch. People donated paper, glass, buttons, and literally the shirts off their backs for the war effort. The government collected cooking pots, plates, old farming tools, and even nails, and sent them to the arsenal at Ibiqui, where the British engineers oversaw the production of artillery. 
Their pride and joy was the 10-inch rifled behemoth named Cristiano, made from the melted-down church bells of Asuncion. Paraguay's most desperate resource deficiency was in manpower. Every able-bodied man had been mobilized back in 1864-65, and by 1867, a lot of these guys were dead. There are documents from this time period where Lopez is ordering his governors to send more men to the front, and they're coming back and saying, uh, Mr. Senor President, we have no men left. They're all gone. Paraguay was running out of people. So the government called up the slaves, the disabled, the criminals, the elderly, but eventually they started to do the unthinkable. On December 12, 1866, a Paraguayan steamer arrived off Humaita with 50 enthusiastic new volunteers for the army between the ages of 10 and 14. And in mid-1867, Lopez extended the draft to all boys between 13 and 16. The Army's propaganda reported, The rapid progress that these youths have made in such a short time, in less than 15 days, they have learned to handle arms as well as veterans. Paraguay was feeding its children to the war, sacrificing their future to survive the present, eating the seed grain. Some of you guys probably already know, to the extent that anyone knows anything about this war, that it caused a demographic disaster in Paraguay. The outlines of that were already very clear by 1867. They were fighting to save their nation, but would there be a nation left to save? With the men gone, the Paraguayan war effort relied on the women. And their efforts were superhuman. They were the economy. They grew all the food, made all the clothing and equipment for a nation with no male labor. This was backbreaking work, requiring immeasurable sacrifices on their part, and somehow they produced just enough to keep the army alive. Paraguay's soldiers never really had enough, but their women were the only reason they had anything. Paraguayan women served on the front lines too. Each family was ordered to send one daughter or sister to the hospital at Humaita, where they came under military discipline with female sergeants to supervise them. The camp followers around Humaita tended the sick, cooked food, washed clothes, and did most of the support work for the army. There are very few, almost no, first-hand accounts from women in the Paraguayan War, which I regret. I wish I had more resources and more material to devote to them. But Paraguayan memory recounts their sacrifice. Here are some lines from Ignacio Pane's poem, La Mujer Paraguaya. She encouraged her brother to fight. She followed her children into combat. In the middle of the night, her silhouette stood out in the funeral battlefield, for she was restlessly searching for the body of her love in the burial grounds. And just as she had shared the nuptial bed with her husband in the shelter of their home, with her husband she fell, faithful companion, on the deathbed of the day's journey. The lack of resources began to tell at the front lines. The bright red uniforms of the early war were gone. Observers described the late war Paraguayan army as practically nude, wearing cross belts over bare torsos along with loincloths. And they were starving, their rations cut over and over, down to a pitiful mouthful of beef per day. There were two sides to the Paraguayan war effort. The teenage soldier, starving, barely clothed, carrying his obsolete musket at the front lines, and the women and girls in the fields, breaking their backs to scratch food from the overworked soil. Then the cholera epidemic hit, 
And if the Allies had suffered, Paraguay suffered much worse. They had no access to modern medicines, and their soldiers were already malnourished. Then there was the salt shortage, which was a critical problem in the humid climate. Without the necessary electrolytes, cholera patients lost all the fluid in their body and died like flies. The epidemic spread to the interior, killing thousands, tens of thousands. A French observer described it as, A real agony for the Paraguayan people, for every plague seems to be launched against this unfortunate country. Luckily, Lopez has had a solution for this. He banned anyone from saying the word cholera. Paraguay was committing every resource, its fields and livestock, its clothing, its household items, its church bells and its theaters, its men, its women, increasingly its children. Literally nothing was sacred, no sacrifice too great. It was a total war. It was also unsustainable. They could not do this forever. The Paraguayan economy wasn't going to snap. It was just going to crumble, an inexorable grinding down as the crop yields shrank, as women ran out of kettles to forge into cannons, as the soldiers in the trenches grew fewer and younger, as disease raked its claws across the land. The Paraguayans were making a collective sacrifice unparalleled in modern history. But would it be enough? Francisco Solano Lopez still reigned supreme from his headquarters at Paso Pucu. For the leader of a country showing great courage and unimaginable suffering, he showed neither. As his soldiers grew thinner, he grew bigger, gorging himself at almost every meal, imbibing enormous quantities of food and alcohol. He was drunk a lot, shouting and throwing things at his subordinates. Masterman observed, It was one of the peculiarities of Lopez that he distrusted everybody who tried to serve him and treated those worst to whom he was the most indebted. As we will see, Dr. George Masterman had reasons for saying that. Lopez built a massive bunker to hide from Allied artillery fire, and literally pushed people out of the way to be first inside whenever a bombardment began. Donations meant for the war effort went towards building a giant statue of Lopez, or into giving him a golden sword for his 1867 birthday. Stupid dictator shenanigans at the expense of his people. This is not uncommon behavior for Latin American dictators. Lopez's gluttony, his greed, even his cowardice was an assertion of power. You consume more, you take more, you behave in unacceptable ways just to show you can. You break the rules as a way of reminding everyone that the rules don't apply to you. Lopez grew paranoid, ordering executions by the score, often while drunk, uh, DUI, dictatorship under the influence. His spies were everywhere, reporting defeatist remarks or unwise comments, and punishment was swift and arbitrary. A lieutenant was executed for observing that the enemy trenches were strong. A private was executed for repeating the taunt he heard from the Allied lines. Lopez even started arresting the family members of deserters. He was the tyrant of Paso Pucu, leading his nation to destruction, an amazing courageous nation that he did not deserve to lead. The long pause was a great time for both sides to consider peace. After all, the war was in a stalemate, both sides were struggling, no one's having fun, maybe it's not worth it and we can call the whole stupid thing off. There were multiple times when a ceasefire might have happened, but the two sides could not agree on the central issue. The Allies demanded that Lopez leave Paraguay, and Lopez refused. Multiple outside powers offered mediation. 
several South American countries in June 1866, the United States in December 1866, the British and French at various points. These offers were ignored. Lopez believed that Brazil's financial issues and Argentina's rebellions would force them to sue for peace, which wasn't an entirely unjustified belief. He also believed, for some reason, that the United States would eventually intervene in the war on his behalf, which I can promise you was not remotely on American minds. The Allies, for their part, refused to make peace until Lopez left the country. Charles Washburn, the American minister to Paraguay, was the main negotiator during the long pause. There were several times he went back and forth between Casillas and Lopez, especially in March 1867. This was when Casillas offered Lopez what was called a golden bridge, basically a giant bribe to leave Paraguay. Dude, we will pay you to buzz off. Take Eliza, take the kids, go live in exile in Paris, and the war will be over. But for all Lopez's many flaws, he saw it as his duty to lead Paraguay to the bitter end. This is why I said that if he was just a normal, corrupt, insane dictator, he, Paraguay would have been better off. But Lopez had a sense of responsibility that even if they gave him this wonderful offer to just leave Paraguay and live in luxury for the rest of his life, he still refused to do it. He had that sense of duty, even if he was fundamentally incapable of living up to it. Washburn reported Lopez constantly ranting about his place in history, his honor, his nation, which we, he saw as an extension of himself. And we can't ignore the Allies, and especially Pedro, were also inflexible on this issue. Honestly, unreasonably so. They got so hung up on removing Lopez that they couldn't find any other way to make peace. Like, you're sticking on this one point, Lopez isn't the only one sticking on this point. The Allies are too. This is on them as well. There would only be one more chance for peace. In August 1867, a British official named Gerald Gould tried to negotiate the evacuation of British citizens from Paraguay. Gould took it upon himself to present Lopez with a hastily written peace proposal. Both sides would withdraw from each other's territory, the border disputes would be mediated by an outside power, neither side would seek reparations, and once the ceasefire was in place and everybody was withdrawn, Lopez would go into exile in Europe. Gould's like, here, Lopez, what do you think? And to his utter astonishment, Lopez said, yeah, sure, I agree. Gould was like, holy crap, you're serious. You're willing to leave Paraguay? The one thing you've said you would never do? And Lopez was like, I guess so. So Gould immediately rushed over to the Allied camp and showed his note to the Marquis of Casillas, who was like, holy crap, is he serious? And then Casillas sent the news out by telegraph. The Argentine and Brazilian governments are like, holy crap, is he serious? And they agreed to the proposal. But by the time Gould got back to Paso Puku, like, look, they agreed, we can have peace. Lopez, for some reason, had changed his mind. Nope. Forget what I said before, I wasn't serious. I'm not leaving. The deal fell apart. Lopez's statement said, Paraguay would not stain her honor and glory by ever consenting that her president and defender, who has contributed to her so much military glory, should descend from his post. The best guarantee for the country would be for Marshal Lopez to follow the path that God has prepared for the Paraguayan nation. One historian calls this a national suicide note. 
And that's pretty accurate. Ghoul's proposal had been easily the best peace offer Paraguay could ever expect from this war. The Allies had been willing to toss out every other peace term in the Treaty of the Triple Alliance if Lopez just went into a luxurious exile, but he turned it down. He had a chance to end the suffering, preserve the lives of his people by sacrificing his own power, but he refused. Call it what you will, his sense of duty, his honor, his ego, his pride, his desperate need for glory, call it cowardice, maybe all of the above. Lopez was Paraguay, and Paraguay was Lopez. He would lead his country, come what may, to the bitter end. The long pause had tested Allied will and Paraguayan resources to their limits, but both sides were still in the fight, and peace was not on the table. After almost a year of stalemate, the Marquis of Caxias was ready to move, and his eyes were fixed on Humaita, the Gibraltar of the South. By July 1867, the Marquis of Caxias was ready to break the stalemate. He had around 46,000 soldiers under his command, 40,000 Brazilian, 5,000 Argentine, and just 600 Uruguayan. Admiral Ignacio's navy had over 40 ships, many of which were monitor ironclads and upgraded American Civil War design. And Caxias' troops were well-fed, well-trained, well-supplied, and equipped with modern rifles, and most importantly, their will was restored. The enthusiastic boys of 65 had given way to the men of 67, solid, disciplined, and determined to finish the Paraguayan War. Facing them was Lopez with 20,000 half-starved, barely-equipped Paraguayan soldiers. But they occupied the quadrilateral, an extensive network of trenches and obstacles and redoubts studded with artillery. And behind them sat the crown jewel, Humaita the Gibraltar of the South, a massive fortress overlooking the bend in the Paraguay River. Humaita boasted three lines of zigzagging earthworks with at least one brick casement, the London Battery, with its guns dominating the river. The whole Paraguayan quadrilateral contained 400 guns. They were supplied by what was left of the Paraguayan Navy, which transported food and equipment downriver to the Great Citadel. This fragile logistic line never brought enough food or clothing or anything, but it kept Lopez's army alive. This fortress complex had earned the nickname Gibraltar of the South, or in reference to the Crimean War, the Sevastopol of America. But the Allied campaign to capture this fortress resembled, more than anything, the Vicksburg campaign from the American Civil War. If it sounds like I'm making a lot of American Civil War references, those were references often made at the time by commentators in Europe and America. After all, the Civil War had just ended a couple years earlier. The Marquis of Caxias had a plan. It had originally been Mitre's plan, but Mitre never had the nerve to execute it, so Caxias took the credit. The plan involved a combined army-navy encirclement of the quadrilateral. Caxias would take the army and encircle Humaita to the east until he reached the Paraguay River, 
cutting off all the land routes to the fortress. Admiral Ignacio's ironclads would make a similar drive up the Paraguay River, running past the heavy guns at Curupaiti and Humaita to join hands with the army. With Humaita surrounded, the Allies would lay siege, the outcome of which would be inevitable. Casillas knew this plan would take time. It was a long, slow plan, not a quick, decisive plan. But the alternative was a frontal attack, and no one wanted another Curupaiti. Casillas was embracing a strategy of attrition, the kind of war he knew the Allies would inevitably win. No matter how long it took, he would grind the Paraguayans down. While his character and mannerisms were closer to Robert E. Lee, Casillas had the strategic instincts of Ulysses S. Grant. On July 22, 1867, Casillas put his plan into motion. The long pause was over. He put his old friend General Osorio, Brazilian blood and guts, in charge of the flanking maneuver around Humaita. Osorio moved out with 28,000 men and 69 artillery pieces, Brazilian infantry and cavalry and engineers, with the tiny Uruguayan army as his spearhead. Casillas designated 10,000 men under the Baron of Porto Alegre to guard the main camp and supply lines at Tuyuti. The plan went off without a hitch. By August 1st, Osorio had covered 40 miles and captured the villages of Tuyuque and San Solano. Casillas was slowly sidestepping the quadrilateral, pushing closer and closer to the Paraguay River. By this time, Mitre had returned to the army and had theoretically assumed command, though Casillas basically ran the show from his new headquarters at Tuyuque. Lopez glared through his telescope as the Cambayes dug in at Tuyuque and San Solano. Just like the Allies couldn't risk another coup de Paiti due to their fragile will, he couldn't risk another Tuyuti because of his fragile resources. The Allied army was too strong to attack. But the Marquis' maneuver had one big weakness. It created a 40-mile supply line running through the swamps from Tuyuti to Tuyuque. And Lopez started to launch raids at the supply line, hoping to slow or even stop the Allied offensive. At the same time, Casillas and Osorio were raiding the Paraguayan supply lines. The Humaita campaign began with no big battles, but a swirl of small battles, as both sides tried to cut each other's supply lines to be the thumb to each other's iron hand of logistics. Lopez orchestrated a series of guerrilla-style raids designed to weaken the Allied encirclement of Humaita. One raid captured a herd of over 800 cattle. Another one captured literally an entire watchtower that the Allies were trying to set up. One of the most valuable raids captured a huge shipment of writing paper, which was actually running really short in Paraguay. The Paraguayans couldn't carry all the paper back, so they hid it nearby and kept sneaking out to grab the paper bit by bit. Imagine you're a Paraguayan teenager, you're risking your life for this paper. Then you say the wrong thing one day and Lopez signs your death warrant on that same paper. <laughs> Welcome to Jackass Paraguayan War Edition. The raids didn't always go according to plan. On September 8th, the Paraguayan 21st Cavalry ran into a force of Allied infantry. They got smashed, lost 150 dead, and fled in panic. Several Paraguayans deserted, which caused Lopez to disband the 21st Regiment and have all its officers either tortured or executed. Despite the legendary morale of the Paraguayan army, there were some desertions. Lots of these guys ended up joining what was called the Paraguayan Legion. There had been Paraguayan exiles living in Buenos Aires before the war, dudes who had fled the regime. 
and the Argentine government helped them raise a unit of exiles. The Paraguayan Legion had around 700 men, so a big regiment, and its leaders were sort of the government-in-waiting for when the Allies eventually conquered Paraguay. If Lopez's men ever captured a legionnaire, well, that guy died very slowly. Lopez's main subordinate was his new favorite commander, the replacement for the late General Diaz. Major Bernardino Caballero was 28 years old, blue-eyed and handsome, a swashbuckling cavalryman with an eye for glory. He rose to prominence on August 11th when his cavalry captured an entire wagon train. Caballero became Lopez's go-to guy whenever he wanted to harass the Allies. On October 3rd, 1867, Caballero scored a major success when he hit the Allied vanguard at Parequé. He crashed in with a cavalry charge, surging forward with saber and lance, driving back the Brazilian infantry. Casillas ordered a counterattack, and several hours of bloody seesaw fighting ensued. The Paraguayans suffered heavy losses, but temporarily stopped the Allied advance. Casillas decided it was time to turn the tables. On October 21st, 1867, Caballero was out on another raid when his men spotted the enemy near Tataiba. A small Brazilian cavalry patrol fired a few shots and rode away in panic. Caballero followed them. He took the bait and walked right into the Marquis of Caxias' ambush. 5,000 Brazilian cavalry burst out of the trees and hit the Paraguayans from three sides. The Allies had a 5-1 to one numbers advantage, but the Paraguayans fought like lunatics, as always, sabers slashing and lances stabbing and horses splashing through the marshes. But Caxias' stoic leadership and allied numbers eventually told. Caballero escaped with a remnant of his force, leaving 400 Paraguayans dead behind him. Tataiba showcased Caxias' ability as a tactical commander. These raids boosted Paraguayan morale, and they made a hero out of Caballero. But they caused more casualties that Paraguay couldn't afford, and even if they slowed the allies down, they couldn't stop them. Caxias knew this, he kept his eye on the ball. His forces crept closer to the Paraguay River, a slow, unstoppable drive that Lopez was helpless to prevent. On the other side of Humaita, Admiral Ignacio's fleet was finally on the move. This was the benefit of Caxias' promotion. He had authority over both the army and the navy. He had unity of command, power that Mitre had never had. The Allies finally had one commander using one strategy to achieve one objective, not a committee of semi-equal group project members. Unity of command is important. On August 15, 1867, at 7 a.m., ten Brazilian ironclads made a lightning dash past the Paraguayan guns at Curupaiti. The Brazilian ironclads took 246 hits, none of which was able to penetrate their metal hulls. Admiral Ignacio had passed the first gauntlet, but he wasn't yet ready to challenge the Gibraltar of the South. The current was too strong, his armor wasn't quite thick enough for the big guns at Humaita. Instead, his ships dropped anchor between Curupaiti and Humaita. The problem was that now Ignacio had to be supplied, and this meant cutting a path through the Chaco. So far, all the action in this campaign has taken place on the east side of the Paraguay River, which was a tangle of swamps with a few dry patches. This was bad enough, but at least there were roads and villages and stuff. On the western bank of the Paraguay River lay the Chaco. This was jungle, just a straight swamp end to end, virtually impassable. 
It took weeks for the Allies to build a road through the Chaco, to bypass Kurupaiti. Eventually, they even built a small railroad that just went around the Paraguayan position on the opposite bank to bring food and fuel to the Allied fleet. This showcased one of the Brazilian Army's specialties, its Superior Engineer Corps, which was always able to build a good road through even the worst terrain. By late October 1867, Lopez only had a single road linking Humaita with the rest of Paraguay. Allied cavalry kept slashing away at it, including cutting the telegraph wires, but now it was time to close it for good. Casillas put 5,000 men under his protege, a brilliant 43-year-old cavalry general named Joao Manuel Mena Barreto. His mission was to take the village of Tayi, 15 miles up the Paraguay River from Humaita, and severed the last road linking the fortress to the rest of Paraguay. Barreto's mission was to complete the encirclement of the quadrilateral. Lopez understood the importance of Tayi, so he sent, who else? George Thompson, to turn the Paraguayan village into a fortress. Thompson arrived with, on November 1st with three Paraguayan steamboats and several hundred troops, but he didn't have enough time. The Paraguayans were still digging their trenches the next day, November 2nd, when Barreto came crashing in with a bayonet charge. The Paraguayans retreated to the riverbank where the steamboats could give them covering fire, but Barreto was one step ahead of them. He brought up his artillery, and the heavy Brazilian guns smashed two of the Paraguayan riverboats. Thompson and a few Paraguayan soldiers barely escaped from the last ship, leaving 500 dead behind them. Barreto quickly fortified Tayi with trenches and artillery. Then he stretched a massive chain across the Paraguay, like he get a, got a big metal chain, put it on pontoons, and laid it across the river, blocking any more Paraguayan ships from reaching the fortress. The Gibraltar of the south was now cut off by land, and virtually cut off by water. Step one was complete. Lopez knew he had to do something. He couldn't just wait for the Allies to surround him. So as soon as George Thompson got back from Tayi, Lopez was like, Hey bro, shake it off. I have another job for you. Go scout out the Allied lines around 2UT, because we're going to attack. Yeah, because this went so well last time, right? Remember the first battle of 2UT? Remember how well that went for the Paraguayans? But, Casillas had taken most of the Allied army on his long flanking maneuver. Tuyuti was very weak as a position right now. Most of the troops were gone. And over the last year and a half, the Allies had gotten complacent. The camp was practically a town by now, with stores and saloons and even banks, and security was very light. Lopez believed that a surprise attack on Tuyuti, on the main Allied supply base, would force Casillas to redeploy his forces and break the encirclement. Lopez designated 9,000 men for the attack. Remember, the first Paraguayan attack on Tuyuti had 24,000 men. This is 9,000. Lopez can't send 24,000 men into battle anymore. He doesn't have 24,000 men to send. His brother-in-law, General Vicente Barrios, Mr. Molester himself, would lead the main infantry assault. If you've noticed, Lopez keeps putting Barrios in charge of things, and he has never once done his job correctly. Bernardino Caballero, now promoted to colonel, would lead the cavalry in a flank attack. This battle was supposed to be a big raid. Get in, steal a bunch of stuff, burn the rest, get out of Dodge. The Second Battle of Tuyuti took place on November 3rd, 1867. And unlike the first battle, the Paraguayans achieved complete surprise. 
They attacked the crack of dawn, shanking the Allied defenders with bayonets before they could react. Within 15 minutes, Argentine and Brazilian soldiers were fleeing in all directions. The colonel of the Paraguayan Legion, Federico Bayes, ran faster than anyone because he could expect instant execution if his countrymen called him. The impact of the Paraguayan attack was shattering. The Allies fell into complete chaos. A flood of panicking civilians streamed out from Tuyuti, running down to Paso de la Patria, trying to climb onto the steamboats. And lots of soldiers went with them. It was almost an Allied disaster. But it wasn't. Because when the Paraguayans reached the Allied camp and saw all that food, their discipline vanished. These poor guys just lost their minds. Soldiers just dropped their weapons and started shoving stuff into their mouths. They were starving. They hadn't had a good meal in months, maybe years. The Paraguayans went on a looting spree, forgetting all about the enemy. And Barrios failed to restrain them, probably because he was looting too. This has happened other times in warfare, especially, for instance, in World War I, when German soldiers in the last months of the war would attack Allied positions, they would find food and just forget about the attack and start eating, because they were starving. So, all this, this Paraguayan discipline completely breaks down, and this allows the Allies to recover. The Baron of Porto Alegre, Tamandare's cousin, had been the scapegoat for many Allied failures, but today the old white beard turned the tide. The Brazilian nobleman drew his sword and rode to the front, chastising his fleeing soldiers. At one point, he rode into the middle of the battle and shot a Paraguayan officer point-blank in the face with his revolver. Porto Alegre pulled off one of the most difficult command performances in the history of warfare, stopping a retreat through sheer willpower. The Allied troops rallied. Brazilian and Argentine infantry reformed around Porto Alegre and started pouring fire into their attackers. The Paraguayans, drunk or looting or stuffing their faces, were in no position to stop them. George Thompson remembered. The Paraguayans sacked the whole of the camp, drinking and eating handfuls of sugar, of which they were very fond. At last, the Brazilians and Argentines came out and butchered many of the Paraguayans, who were here, there, and everywhere, those who could do so, making off with their booty. I mean, I've said before the Paraguayans were starving. But there's starving, and then there's I'm shoving my face with sugar so fast that I ignore the people actively shooting me levels of starving. Caballero's cavalry had better discipline. They escaped with several captured guns and 250 Allied prisoners. But Barrios's infantry were cut to pieces. The Paraguayans managed to get away with some of their loot, but they left over 2,000 dead on the field behind them. The Second Battle of Tuyuti had lasted four hours. The Paraguayans gloated over their newfound treasures. Thompson remembered. The spoil was immense and consisted of articles of every conceivable kind. Mail had just arrived from Buenos Aires and was taken to Lopez, who, on reading one of the letters, said, Poor Mitre, I am reading his wife's letter. Parasols, dresses, crinolines, shirts, Crimean shirts especially, cloth, were brought in large quantities, every man carrying as much as he could. A tripod telescope was brought from one of the watchtowers, and gold watches, sovereigns, and dollars were abundant. Lopez, guess what, declared victory and gave out a bunch of medals. But the Second Battle of Tuyuti was not a Paraguayan victory. Winning the first half of the battle isn't winning the battle. The loot was irrelevant. 
Second Tuyuti failed to accomplish Lopez's objective to break the Allied encirclement, and it did kill 10% of his army, casualties he could under no circumstances afford. Second Tuyuti was the last major attack Lopez would ever launch. His army didn't have another one in them. American Civil War buffs will notice that this battle is strikingly similar to the Battle of Cedar Creek, October 19, 1864, just over three years earlier, where the Confederates lost discipline and started eating the food they found in the Union camp because they were starving, giving Union General Philip Sheridan time to rally his panicking army, counterattack, and win the battle. History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And the breakdown in Paraguay and discipline told another story. Discipline doesn't fill your stomach. Morale doesn't put clothes on your back. The needs of the human body can eventually overpower even the strongest will. I bet most of those Paraguayans killed at second 2UT thought, you know, I'm probably just going to die next month anyway. At least now, I won't die hungry. Casillas refused to be distracted by Lopez's attacks. He had a vise around the quadrilateral, and it was tightening. His strategy was working. With Humaita surrounded and the river blocked, Lopez found an ingenious way to keep the fortress supplied. Like the Allies, he built a supply road on the Chaco on the west side of the river. Unlike the Allies, he had no engineering corps. The Chaco was a massive tangle of vines with thorns like knives, stalked by jaguars, swarmed by ants and giant termites. Just This is just an enormous standing swamp. And somehow... The Paraguayans built a 54-mile-long road through it. They're basically building a highway in the Everglades. They have machetes and shovels, and that's it. This was a monumental effort from a deprived and exhausted Paraguayan army. The Chaco Road managed to provide just enough supplies as 1867 turned into 1868. The new year looked bleak for Paraguay. They had successes in small skirmishes here and there. Nice. Polite applause. But facts were facts. The Allies had the Gibraltar of the South in a headlock. It was a matter of time. But Lopez woke up one morning, on January 11th, 1868, and he saw something from Paso Puku. Two miles away, at Casillas' headquarters outside Tuyuque, all the flags were at half-mast, and the Argentine soldiers were all in their dress uniforms. Clearly, someone important had died, and since it was the Argentines who looked upset... Lopez assumed it was Bartolome Mitre. Looks like my luck's turning around, boys. Everything's coming up, Lopez. Lopez assumed that if Mitre was dead, the alliance would finally fall apart. Mitre wasn't dead, but his vice president, Marcos Paz, was. And Mitre had depended on Paz to keep a lid on things in Argentina. There was an election coming up. Cholera had hit Buenos Aires. Uh, cholera had killed Paz. And worst of all, another rebellion had broken out in Santa Fe province. Mitre had to choose. He could be Allied Supreme Commander, or he could be President, but he couldn't do both full-time. And now that Casillas was basically running the war anyway, the choice was obvious. On January 14, 1868, Bartolome Mitre left the war front, this time for good. Casillas was now in full, unambiguous command of the forces of the Triple Alliance. Bartolome Mitre was a skilled politician, a legendary writer, and an excellent administrator. His diplomatic and organizational skills had forged and maintained the Triple Alliance and its army. 
but he never had the talents of a great commander, the decisiveness, the fortitude, the will. His military failures, especially at Kurupaiti, cast a bitter shadow over his career. Once he was lauded as Argentina's great soldier statesman, the man who would modernize and unify his nation, now even his own party believed his time had passed. He was the Lyndon B. Johnson of South America. His genuine accomplishments and high ideals lost in the shadow of a disastrous war and political chaos at home. He remains one of the complex and tragic figures of Argentine history. A month after Mitre's departure, Casillas finally closed the ring around the Gibraltar of the South. And as always, the decisive action would take place on the rivers of destiny. It was 1868, and the siege of Humaita dragged on. Paraguay was broken in terms of manpower, and the Chaco Road was insufficient to supply the army. They were on the verge of collapse. One observer described the Paraguayan soldiers. Worn out with exposure, fatigue, and privations, they are actually dropping. They have been reduced for the last six months to meat alone, and that of a very inferior quality. They may once in a while get a little Indian corn, but manioc and especially salt are so very scarce they are only served to the sick. Many soldiers are in a state bordering on nudity, having only a piece of tanned leather around their loins, a ragged shirt, and a poncho made of vegetable fiber. The fact that these guys are still fighting after three years of starvation, mistreatment, exposure, disease, and sheer suffering is incredible. You don't think they can last another day, but they always do. Their will remained unconquered. The Gibraltar of the South held. But for how long? The Marquis of Caxias was a patient man. He knew that time was on his side. As long as he held the ring, the fortress would fall. But this did not play to the Allied public. We've been promised victory several times, and here we are. Y'all played Caxias up as this MVP. Where are the results? A Buenos Aires newspaper summed up the growing cynicism. Good God, has it come to this? That in the middle of the 19th century, a whole people must be exterminated to dethrone one man. Is all our civilization but a hollow farce that the last drop of Paraguayan blood must be shed before either party cries, Hold! Enough! Cassius' cautious risk-averse strategy was meant to preserve Allied will by avoiding costly frontal attacks like Kurupaiti. But this ran a different risk, that the lack of visible progress would also damage Allied will. The Brazilian government was struggling to maintain support for the war. Some politicians were calling for Caxias' removal. Dom Pedro intervened to keep his man in charge, but pressure was rising on the home front. Caxias needed a major victory, some progress he could show the Allied public. Luckily, he had just the thing in mind. On February 13th, three brand new ironclads, 
Bahia, Barroso, and Tamandare arrived to join Admiral Ignacio's navy. Each ironclad carried three inches of metal armor, a bronze ram, and a single massive cannon in a rotating turret. They were state-of-the-art monitors, upgraded versions of the Union ironclad from the American Civil War, bigger, stronger, and better armored than anything the Allies had before. They were fresh out of the shipyards at Rio, specifically designed for one mission, to run the gauntlet of Humaita. In the pre-dawn hours of February 19, 1868, Humaita was quiet. It was humid, and the blue-green waters of the Paraguay River streamed quietly towards the sea. Then, out of nowhere, every gun in the Allied Army and Navy opened fire. On the land, 7,000 Brazilians swarmed to storm the Paraguayan redoubt of Sierva, only two miles north of Humaita. At the cost of 600 men, Dionisio Cerqueira and his unit carried the position by the bayonet, and the noose around Humaita drew a little tighter. But all this was a distraction. Concealed by the darkness on the river, six Brazilian ironclads weighed anchor and headed upriver towards the guns of Humaita. The three new ironclads each had a smaller, older ironclad lashed to their port side because their engines weren't strong enough for the current. The new engines on the new ironclads were strong enough to propel both of them. The monitors stalked through the darkness like crocodiles, their engines thrumming up the river of destiny. As soon as the ironclads appeared, all of Humaita's guns started hammering away. The Paraguayans lit bonfires to illuminate their targets, and the black and blue night was shattered by dancing flames and muzzle flashes reflected on the water. At one point, over 150 Paraguayan cannon fired simultaneously, a massive thunder heard for miles as they tried to blow the Brazilian ironclads out of the water. The monitors took 40 minutes to push through the curtain of steel, their underpowered boilers straining against the current. At one point, a piece of shrapnel cut the cable, binding the smaller, older Alagoas to the larger, newer ironclad Bahia, and the smaller vessel drifted helplessly into the current. The Paraguayans saw their chance. Colonel Bernardino Caballero sent hundreds of men out in canoes to try and capture the Alagoas. The Paraguayans reached the ironclad and swarmed aboard, but at that moment the Alagoas' engines fired and she escaped upriver. She had to like plow through several canoes to get away. Colonel Caballero, watching from the shore, bit his saber and screamed in frustration. By dawn, the six ironclads had reached the Allied lines at Taiyi. The passage of Humaita was complete. Each ironclad had taken dozens of hits, but their heavy armor had seen them through the fire, and not a single Brazilian sailor had been killed. Those ironclads work. The passage of Humaita was the turning point. Everyone saw it as a major Allied victory. The Gibraltar of the South, Humaita was supposed to lock down the river, and the ironclads had bypassed it. The Sevastopol of America had been humbled. There were three days of celebration in Rio, with brass bands and big parades. International observers in London and Paris called it one of the great naval achievements of the age. There were the usual comparisons made to Nelson and stuff. And best of all, Brazil and Argentina were able to secure new loans from the London banks. Their stock prices literally rose after news of this achievement broke. The passage of Humaita improved the Allied credit scores. With this, Lopez knew that the fortress's fate was sealed. 
he sent most of the civilians, including Eliza Lynch and their children, up the Chaco Road to safety. But he also ordered the evacuation of Asuncion. Yes, the entire city. Everyone out. Because the passage of Humaita had exposed the capital. The whole reason Humaita was there was to protect any Allied ships moving up the Paraguay River. Everything past that point was defenseless, and the ironclads were already on their way upriver to Asuncion. Vice President Sanchez ordered the evacuation. Everyone was told to relocate nine miles east to the town of Luque. In a driving rainstorm, all the citizens of the city gathered anything they could carry and marched out through the mud. The high-ranking officials who remained in Asuncion sat down to plan the city's defenses. And someone said, Hey, uh, what if we just surrender? Everyone looked at each other. That was a dangerous thing to say. It is not exactly clear what else was said at this meeting or several later meetings, but it sounds like some of Paraguay's top officials were thinking about going behind the dictator's back, handing the city over, and surrendering Paraguay. And it wasn't just some randos talking about this. Two of the conspirators were Solano Lopez's own brothers, Venancio and Benino. And like, yeah, you gotta imagine there had been some whispers behind closed doors for a while. Hey guys, the president's crazy. He's gonna get us all killed. He's gonna destroy this country. Why don't we just get rid of Solano Lopez and end the war? But Vice President Sanchez chewed everyone out for even mentioning surrender. How dare you? We have to fight on. That shut most people up. The problem was that Lopez's spies were everywhere. And he would hear about this lapse in will from his trusted advisors and his family. The Brazilian ironclads arrived outside Asuncion on February 24, 1868. They shelled the outskirts of the city for four hours and left without doing any real damage. The Allies had not come to occupy the city. They didn't have the ability to do that yet. The raid on Asuncion was just a bit of psychological warfare. Like, Humaita can't protect you anymore. We can hit you. You're losing. The raid sent Allied morale even higher back in Rio and Buenos Aires. No one in Dom Pedro's government dared question Casillas anymore. With the passage of Humaita and the raid on Asuncion, he had delivered two major victories that made it seem like the tide had turned. But Lopez had one last trick up his sleeve, the crowning moment of military jackassery in this war. He decided to attack the Brazilian ironclads with, you guessed it, canoes. Break out the champagne, everyone, the canoes are back. Lopez thought that if he could capture a Brazilian ironclad, he could regain control of the river. So he ordered a specially trained unit of Paraguayan soldiers armed with machetes and primitive hand grenades to board and seize two of the Brazilian ironclads. Now this was very stupid. This was one of the stupidest things that's happened in this war. These guys are not in great shape. These, you know, malnourished, rib-showing Paraguayans, and their swimming abilities were dubious. They did like a crash course swimming lesson for like a few days. But Lopez had one solution for every problem, throw bodies at it. It was the truest test of Paraguayan will versus allied resources. Send a bunch of naked teenagers with machetes to attack state-of-the-art military warships. The first attack came on the night of March 1st. Some of the canoes collided in the darkness, assumed that other guys were Brazilians, and started fighting and shooting at each other, 
Some other canoes got swept away by the current, and one literally fell into a whirlpool and drowned half its crews. The Brazilians didn't even notice. The Brazilian sailors were like, do you hear something? Welcome to Jackass Paraguayan War Edition. The Paraguayans tried again on March 2nd. This time, they at least got to the ironclads. The canoe squads managed to climb aboard the Lima Bardos and the Cabral before everyone started shooting at them. The commander of the Lima Bardos was Captain Garcindo Fernando de Sa. You probably don't remember this guy, but he's that dude whose ship got boarded at the Battle of the Riachuelo. So yeah, not the first time he's had this happen. Like, why is it always me? Captain Garcindo and his crew just ran inside their ironclad, closed and locked all the hatches, and started shooting through the firing slits. So the Paraguayans are just hacking away at the metal doors with their machetes, unable to get inside the ironclad. Then the other Brazilian ironclads came up to the rescue, raking the decks of their fellow vessels with grape shot. The Brazilian sailors were inside their steel armor. They were safe. The Paraguayans were shredded like supermarket cheese. 150 of the 200 attackers were killed, and the rest barely escaped. So, not a success. And this was not the last time Lopez tried this. He ordered another canoe attack in July 1868, and it ended the exact same way. Canoes versus ironclads. Not going to go well. Welcome to Jackass Paraguayan War Edition. Francisco Solano Lopez and his staff evacuated Humaita the next day. Like, nope, we're out of here. As always, when the going got tough, Lopez got going. Somewhere else, where the going wasn't so tough. He crossed over to the Chaco and began the long trek up the miserable road through the jungle. George Thompson remembered the journey. We had to pass several deep lagoons, over some of which bridges were begun but not yet finished. Some of these bridges were brushwood upon beams laid in the water. We had then to cross the Bermejo, a torturous river with very red water, by means of canoes. We now had to ride through a league of wood and mud three feet deep. We went through some leagues of bamboo forest, after which we crossed the Paso Ramirez in canoes. The entire trip is just canoe, mud, canoe, mud, canoe, mud. There were times when the entire group had to hide in the bushes as Brazilian ironclads stalked down the river within eyesight. Screw this road, man. Lopez and his staff finally made it to the end of the road and recrossed the river. The dictator set up a new headquarters at San Fernando and got Thompson started building a new defensive line on the Tebequery River. Finally, he ordered most of the Paraguayan army to abandon Humaita, make their way up the Chaco Road, and join him. The 10,000 survivors of the Paraguayan army had to cross the river, march 54 miles up the Chaco Road with their heavy artillery, then recross the river to catch up with Lopez. Two of the last ships in the Paraguayan Navy, the Yaguari and the Taquari, helped with the evacuation. But on March 22nd, the Brazilian ironclads caught them and blew them to pieces. The Taquari, Lopez's old flagship, his pride and joy, one of the last survivors of the Riachuelo, went to the bottom. After that, the entire evacuation was by canoe. Centurion remembered rowing across at nighttime, dodging fire from an ironclad, then getting on the road and losing his cavalry boots in the mud, having his feet hacked to pieces with thorns, getting lost and barely managing to reach the end of the road. Once again, it is remarkable that the Paraguayan army was able to make this retreat, but they did. In the meantime, Cachias tightened his fist around the Gibraltar of the south. 
On March 28th, he ordered multiple assaults along the lines. With too few men to hold the old trenches, Lopez had his men abandon the quadrilateral and withdraw into the inner defenses of Humaita. This sacrificed positions like Curupaiti and Boqueron and his old headquarters at Paso Puku, positions that his soldiers had defended for two years. The siege of Humaita entered its final stage. Lopez had left only 3,000 men to defend the citadel. Wonder how they picked. Did they, did, did they pull straws or have to play rock, paper, scissors or what? The leader of this last 3,000 was Colonel Paulino Ailen, a disreputable officer with a serious alcohol problem. As almost 30,000 men surrounded Humaita, the 3,000 held out week after week, month after month, into April and May and June 1868. Casillas decided to cut their supply line. On May 2nd, the Allied ironclads carried 2,000 men across the river over to the Chaco. Cerquiera and his Brazilian battalion made an amphibious landing in the swamp, only to find the Paraguayans waiting. He and his comrades had their backs to the river when General Rivas arrived with his Argentines. Rivas drove the enemy off and set up a fort blocking the Chaco Road, closing Humaita's last supply line. Lopez ordered Caballero to reopen the Chaco Road, like attack and drive the Allies off. But the Allies called in fire support from the ironclads, whose huge shells blew the Paraguayan cavalry away. Caballero managed to draw the Argentines into an ambush on July 18th, and he cut them up pretty good in the Battle of Acaiwaza. Lopez, of course, declared a great victory and promoted Caballero to general, but like so many Paraguayan victories, it changed nothing. Humaita's garrison was out of food. They were almost skeletal, nearly naked, barely able to stand. There were still 300 women in the fortress with them, carrying water and ammunition, tending the sick and wounded, doing everything to hold out for another week, another day, another hour. Colonel Allen lost all hope. On July 12, 1868, he stuck a revolver in his mouth. His attempt failed, leaving him horribly wounded but still alive. He was evacuated and Colonel Francisco Martinez succeeded to command, the last commander of Humaita. On July 15th, Casillas ordered a major assault on the fortress. General Osorio led 12,000 Brazilians against Humaita, but somehow, even now, Colonel Martinez's men stood their ground. Osorio had two horses shot out from under him and lost nearly 2,000 men, and the attack failed. But it was the last gasp. Colonel Martinez knew that the end had come. On the night of July 24, 1868, the band played and the garrison fired a 21-gun salute. The noise covered the sound of the Humaita garrison slipping across the river. The music stopped, the bandsmen cheered, then rushed for the canoes. By 5 a.m. the next morning, the last Paraguayan soldiers had left Humaita. For Colonel Martinez and his garrison, the journey had just begun. With the Allied fort blocking the Chaco Road, they had to somehow escape through the jungle by canoe, chased by ironclads and Brazilian cavalry patrols the whole way. Sometimes they ran into Allied canoes, and fighting took place in the darkness with bayonets and machetes. By August 1st, Argentine General Rivas had surrounded Martinez on a dry spot called Ilapoy. They were out of food. 
They ate their horses, wild berries, leaves, even the lubrication oil for their guns. And they drove back one Argentine attack after another. Rivas demanded their surrender for three days, but Martinez refused. It took a Brazilian naval chaplain, Father Esmeraz, to finally convince him to lay down his arms. On August 5, 1868, the Humaita survivors surrendered. Colonel Martinez hadn't eaten for four days. He was so weak that he could barely speak, but he still managed to render a salute to General Rivas. The Paraguayans looked like corpses. They were falling over, barely alive, but their will was unbroken. 99 officers and 1,200 men, along with a handful of women, marched into captivity with their heads held high. The Allied soldiers walked into Humaita, gazing with wonder at the fortress that had defied them for so long. And their overwhelming takeaway was, This is it? Humaita's trenches weren't reinforced. Their bunkers were made of mud. Most of the fortress wasn't even stone or concrete. It was just earth and wood. Lots of the guns the Allies captured were museum pieces dating back to the 17th century. Everybody looks around to like, All the propaganda made a huge deal out of this place, like it was some doom fortress. But up close, this is it? Even Cassius was disappointed. I, too, after entering Humaita, saw that that fortress was nothing more than a large fortified paddock. We could have taken it on the 16th of July, if we had wanted to lose another 500 or 600 men. To some people, the sad state of the fortress made a mockery of Cassius's caution and patience. Like, it's a mud fort. You could have taken it ages ago. Humaita had never really been a Gibraltar of the South. But these people missed the point. The fortress's strength had never been its walls. It had been the men and women inside it. They had held for almost 13 months, a siege unmatched in the history of the Western Hemisphere, a siege that cost tens of thousands of casualties and nearly broke Allied will more than once. It was their achievement, an achievement they would remember to the present as the great sacrifice, the great struggle of their nation's history. Paraguay itself, its soldiers, its women, its people, and their will had been the true Gibraltar of the South. The fall of Humaita sparked celebrations in the Allied nations. Paraguay had lost their great fortress, the centerpiece of Lopez's defense, the only thing stopping the Allies from marching to Asuncion. It seemed like victory was at hand. In late August, Cachillas began to lead his army north towards the Paraguayan defenses around San Fernando. Lopez gave these lines up without a fight, retreating north to a new line that George Thompson had constructed the Pixery River, only a few miles from the Paraguayan capital. It seemed like the end of the war was in sight. But when Cachillas' army arrived at San Fernando on September 1st, Lopez's evacuated headquarters, they made a horrible discovery. Serquiera remembered. We found an immense ditch piled high with corpses. There were many such ditches, each one decorated with a pole driven through a throat or mouth and bearing the warning, traitors to the fatherland. Lopez had finally gone off the deep end. Paraguay was consuming its own. The San Fernando Massacre started in March 1868, 
When Lopez arrived in San Fernando after evacuating Humaita and heard about all those meetings that his friends and family and colleagues had been having back in Asuncion. When his brother Benino arrived and said, Hey bro, what's up? Lopez stared at him and said, And so, what is it that you people were thinking of doing back at the capital? Lopez put General Resquin in charge of a military court to investigate what he called the treasonous plot, this conspiracy, to destroy the Paraguayan nation. Guys, it is still very unclear how much of a plot there really was. Lopez's prosecutors spun, like, this huge stringboard conspiracy theory involving Charles Washburn, the American diplomat, and the Marquis of Caxias, and, like, 15 other people, probably, probably the Illuminati and Freemasons and a bunch of stuff. And there was probably some kind of plot, like some sort of half-baked thing that Lopez's brothers thought up. But this whole investigation went into Salem witch trial territory at lightning speed. It got to Stalinist purge level. San Fernando descended into a paranoid frenzy. Torture became the primary method of interrogation. There was food and water deprivation and whipping and beating, all carried out by teenage Paraguayan soldiers, adding a Lord of the Flies twist to the whole business. The most infamous torture was the Sepo Uruguayana, which involved hogtying someone on the ground before loading their back with stacked muskets. The shoulders would dislocate, and the muscles would tear along the ribcage, rendering their arms basically crippled. Under this, people said whatever their interrogators wanted to hear. The executions began. Everyone was a traitor. Foreign Minister Jose Berges, dead. Treasury Minister Saturnino Bedoya, dead. The artillery expert General Bruges, dead. The British naval engineer John Watts, Manuel Palacios, the Bishop of Asuncion, Colonel Alain, who had attempted suicide in Humaita, only to die in front of the firing squad, Antonio de las Carreras, the exiled leader of the Uruguayan Blancos, Lopez's own brother, Benino Lopez, and his brother-in-law, General Vicente Barrios. Lopez executed the Swedish biologist Eberhard Monk for failing to use his knowledge of witchcraft to defeat the Allies, question mark, which was apparently treason. The toll to the Paraguayan state was disastrous. Most of its top government officials, half the army's high-ranking officers, and many elite men and women of Asuncion. Their sons had died at Tuyuti. Now they died at San Fernando. British doctor George Masterman was lucky to just be tortured. He wasn't executed, and he survived to write his account of the war. Funny, he's not very nice to Lopez. Then there was Juliana Yinsfran de Martinez. Lopez had been furious when Colonel Martinez surrendered the Humaita garrison instead of fighting to the death. He couldn't get revenge on the colonel, but he could get to his wife. The fact that Colonel Martinez had surrendered rather than die of starvation was proof that he was one of the conspirators, and his wife was ordered to confess. But the poor woman knew nothing and could not confess. She was flogged with sticks and the flesh literally cut from her shoulders and back. Then the Sepo Uruguayana was applied. She was kept alive long enough to undergo it at six different times, between whiles being flogged until her whole body was a livid mass. To me, this is the most unforgivable of Lopez's executions. Martinez had served him faithfully and bravely down to the end, his only crime not being to die pointlessly. 
and his wife paid the price. Juliana Martinez was executed in December 1868 after five months of torture. It had to have been a mercy. Solano Lopez spent most of this period drunk, brooding, descending into rages and tantrums, signing one death warrant after another. He had suddenly grown very religious, which can be a good character development, but in this case was not. He was very selective about the parts of the Bible he read. The executions seemed to verify to him that everyone else was weak or treasonous, that only he, he alone, could be trusted with the fate of his nation. At least 500 people, possibly as many as 800, were executed at San Fernando. Lopez had massacred some of his best and most loyal followers, including the wife of the man who had held Humaita for him to the bitter end. I keep saying this, but he will get worse. This isn't the bottom. It seemed that the end of the war was in sight. The Allies had always had the resources, and they had maintained the will to destroy Lopez's defenses. This was never inevitable. The Allied war effort had almost collapsed more than once, but it had held together. It helped that they had found a great general, the Marquis of Caxias, who rebuilt the army, formulated the strategy, and pursued it to victory. He provided purpose, direction, and motivation. Leadership matters. Lopez's decisions were also a key factor in the Allied victory, not least because of his wasteful expenditure of Paraguay's most limited resource, manpower. His leadership failures were enormous. He was repeatedly unable to separate his ego, his ambition, his delusions of grandeur from the interests of his nation. He had passed up a chance to save his people from destruction by sacrificing his ego, and he was fundamentally incapable of doing this and he had brought his country to the brink of disaster. The Paraguayan people had sacrificed everything, given everything, done everything they could. They had maintained their will through astonishing hardships and suffering, and it wasn't enough. They failed to muster the resources to match, and even when they did, their leader had squandered them. Their men were dead. Their economy was in ruins. The capital was abandoned. Their elite were being slaughtered by their delusional dictator. By any objective standard, Paraguay had lost the war. It should have been over. But it wasn't. The San Fernando trials were a sign of things to come. Despite the catastrophe that was happening to his country, Lopez would not admit defeat. He was Paraguay, and Paraguay was Lopez. If he was going down, he was taking them all with him. The Paraguayan War would continue for another year and a half, an unending agony that ground the tiny nation into powder. South America's greatest war continued over the edge into insanity, and the only way it could end was the death of the man who had started it. But until then, it would be a road to destruction, a South American Ragnarok, as Francisco Solano Lopez dragged his nation with him into the abyss. Thanks a bunch for listening today. Now, before we tease the final episode, I have another short round coming up for you guys. She is a woman who has been at the periphery of this story, but now it's her time to shine. Was she a wicked queen, a feminist icon, a greedy hooker, or a national heroine? Maybe none of the above, maybe all of the above, depends on who you ask. 
This is Francisco Solano Lopez's Irish mistress, the elusive and mysterious Eliza Lynch, and all the stories about her, most of which weren't true. See you in a week or two, ideally, for the Paraguayan War Part 4.5, The Many Lives of Madame Lynch. And don't forget also, at the beginning of our next full-length episode, episode number 51, I will announce the winners of our contest, those lucky five listeners who are going to get an Unknown Soldiers podcast mug. Don't forget to tune in for that if you enter. (laughs) But after that, brace yourselves for the final descent into madness. Join me in four to five weeks for the conclusion to our series. I say four to five because that's the weekend of Thanksgiving I'll have family up. The the final episode is a fun, light, cheerful subtitle. A subtitle that tells you all the wonderful things that await us in our final chapter. See you here for episode 51, The Paraguayan War Part 5, Death of a Nation. Only here on Unknown Soldiers.